Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This episode is brought to you by Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network where the Andrews family brings the great ideas of Western literature to bear on the life, art, and culture of our modern world. Look for Bibliophiles, that's Bibliophiles with an F, wherever you get your podcasts, or find curriculum materials, online classes, and book clubs at centerforlit.com. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you were listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, and Tim is making distracting faces. Have we ever gone over the professional like a thing. I wish you guys no. could see this. He looks like one of those big floppy balloons with arms that's like at a, outside of, a, of a, like a car dealership. Like a Rose Bowl parade? Oh, No, yeah. like the yeah, balloon yeah. man. What is that guy called? No, not like, Lucy not, got me like no. a little man, a little one for Christmas in my stocking because I'm like obsessed with those things. I think they're hilarious. <laughs> and I drive like really I never slowly knew that about by you, them I think. whenever I see them. <laughs> but I don't know what they're called. They're kind of wonderful, they're like aren't they? like a windsock man. <laughs> yeah, windsock man. Okay, Maybe windsock, man, windsock man. Tim, you looked like a windsock man. Is what yeah, I was trying to say. Like. Thank you. You got the I, I, I went to Rose Bowl. Per- <laughs> <laughs> what? It's the compliment. You look like a giant sock with hardly any features. <laughs> Are you suggesting that I'm like limber and flexible? Yes, yes, that is exactly oh. what I am suggesting. Increasingly oh. so as you get older. What? <laughs> I feel like, again, another podcast begins with a kind of rout of Tim's feelings. No, I think she was actually trying to be nice to you. An attack. No, it was. It was not an attack. It's another attack. You were the one that did windsock man movements. I feel like you opened yourself up and I said, you've got the build for it, which is a way of saying, I don't know, like, like a basketball build, you know, tall, limber. (laughs) Oh, 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 that yeah, makes sense. Lean. Yeah, kind of stretchy. Yeah, stretchy, yes. Yeah. Lean, <laughs> stretchy. Yeah, Tim, Tim, <laughs> you have a basketball build. Yep. Win sock Thank man you. build. So <laughs> we, we are here. We are here to discuss. What are we here to discuss? Oh, yeah. As they lay dying. We're in the, 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 the third of four sections. This ends with Mosley's uh, POV. In my edition, the hardcover modern library edition, it is page 182. So we're coming, coming down to it. You know, sometimes we talk on this show, we'll say things like, well, you know, maybe not a lot happened on this episode, but here's why it's, or this section, here's why it still matters. Well, this is one of those episodes where so much happened. Just this a lot of stuff happened. Episode. Everything happened. Um, there's a river crossing. There's a broken leg. We learned stuff about Dewey Dell. There's more mom fish stuff. Um, so just a lot happens. And yet I feel the need to begin in a particular place. 
Because mm-hmm. earlier today, we were texting. And Tim and I received a text from Heidi White. And it was <laughs> the kind of text that one brings up on a podcast as an entry entryway into a conversation. I'm going to mm-hmm. read. It was a private glimpse it. into my inner life. Now you're... <laughs> Well, I'm going to read yeah. this private glimpse into Heidi's inner life. She meant it to be <laughs> private, and yet I'm still going to share does it, it with thousands of people. With, on the does internet. it begin with ga? Yeah, it begins with ga. Can you do that? Could you do a live rendering of that for us, Heidi? Ga. It's even more intense than just ga. Okay. Like it's, got it has it. like a ga. Like it's ng. <laughs> okay. Okay. Got it. She then followed up that exclamation with the following sentence. I want to crawl into this book and punch ants in the throat. Oh that my was, gosh, I so do. To which Tim responded, no doubt. Classic Tim fashion, all caps, exclamation point. So the two of you have violent feelings and we're going to work that out on today's mm-hmm. episode. As one does when one reads as they lay dying. Heidi, why do you want to crawl into this book and punch ants in the throat? Gah! Gah! Ah! Uh, because he's a horrible, horrible man. And I had. <laughs> Other than that, no reason. Yeah. Oh. Like, I just. Well, that's I the wish end of this week's show. Person who knocked out his teeth and makes him need new teeth. <laughs> Except that's what makes him such a jerk. <laughs> like, he's so awful. He's so. He's like selfish and. Uh, he makes he gives people so much trouble and then he acts like he's being nice and then he stands there while his wife's coffins turning over in water and then his kid almost dies and ah, he's just the worst he's the worst well he doesn't have any arms or legs oh wait no that's teeth sorry that's windsock he doesn't have teeth he has arms and legs he just (laughs) tim you said what what makes him so oh man what makes him so just revolting is that he does all the things that heidi just said he kind of like sidelines everything, doesn't do anything. And then to make matters worse, he plays the victim. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, oh, his like, you know, I'm the one who's just being done wrong here. I'm the, and you're just like, dude, get a job. Go get a job. Yeah. Oh, you're a get a job guy, huh? I'm a get a job guy. I mean, <laughs> when they want to go get a water bucket after they've passed through the town, they've made it across the river miraculously. And they want to go get a water bucket. And he's like, I don't want to be beholden to anybody. And you're like, what are we talking about here, man? Just like, I don't want to be beholden to like borrowing or even yeah, a a water bucket to water our animals. He sold Jules horse. When like someone volunteered and offered to get, loan him this team, you can't sell Jewel's horse. You know, Jewel went through to get that horse. I know Jewel's an ass. I know that. But right. this is his father. No, no. Yeah, it, it, it's not though. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, right. That's a good point. Does the ants know that? Okay. That's an intriguing question. Do we think that ants knows that Jewel is not his son? I Do we have any indication in the text? I haven't seen an indication. I was, I've been, yeah, I've been looking Jewel for it. His son. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's so self-absorbed. Like, he, I don't even know if he would notice. Like, he doesn't even notice his wife's having an affair because he's sitting around thinking about his teeth and being a jerk. Right. 
Oh yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> also, you know, like maybe a cause and effect there, like, you know, look in the mirror right. much. Thank you. Yep. Although if I didn't have teeth, maybe I wouldn't want to look in the mirror either. The mirror. Um, <laughs> so the two of you come down hard on ants mm-hmm. and I'm not like the opposite. I just, I think I, I was just thinking a lot while reading about where the sympathies mm. of this book seem to be coming down on these different characters. Like, you know, this isn't a book that has a clear villain. It's mm. not a book that has, you come away from it, like feeling like there's a clear hero either. Mm. There's a problem and there's a group of people and they're all suffering in various ways. And so I've been thinking a lot about where does the book itself, like as an entity, not, not, you know, how does ants feel about so forth? How do the different points of view care about the different other characters, but how does the book as an entity feel about the different characters? So where do you think the book, and we'll just say Faulkner, if that's easier, where do you think his sympathies are with these different characters? Like who does the book seem to sympathize the most and the least with? That might be the Mm. easiest Maybe that's yeah. not the easiest, but what do you think about that, Sam? I, I just, you know, these characters are going through so much and they're making so many bad choices and they're so unsure of what's happening and they don't know what choices to make. And so even when they're making bad choices, you kind of feel like, well, what's the alternative in a lot of times? Like they don't have a lot of options. Yeah. So where do you fall on, on this question? I think high on the list of sympathies is Dewey Dell. I think that the scene in the drugstore is just yeah the last section that we so heartbreaking yeah Um, that's the Mosley perspective yeah that's the Mosley perspective and this poor girl is just so lost and she I mean I get like I get the drugstore owner has like a moral conviction about what she wants I totally get that Mm -hmm. Um, but man just no sympathy with this poor girl's plight. Um, yeah. And more How and more, you, I, just have, I just have so much sympathy with her plight. Do you get the sense that she knows what it is that she has been sent to ask for? That's a great question. Hmm. Like the particulars, like they say, it's don't worry, go get this no. medicine, it'll be fine. No, she thinks, I, I get the sense she thinks it's like a pill, like a magic pill. Some something that will be easy, and I don't think she thinks of it as an operation of some kind um, mm-hmm. or anything that, yeah, I think she just thinks it's like magic, right? She's almost like a, I don't know, like she she lives almost like a very like medieval life, like like a like a yeah. maiden in a village, you know, That's just a great like point, doesn't yeah. know what what what's up. And, um, yeah, she's very, to Tim's point, she's, she's very pathetic and like the sense of pathos pathetic, not in the sense of like, ew, pathetic. Like she just has this like helplessness. Not in the way that ants is pathetic. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Like there's just this helplessness and this, this fragility, uh, to her and this, uh, like all of her defenses are up and she's unkind, but it's like an animal in a trap kind of, um, Mm -hmm. it's. Yeah, she's she's like terribly tragic figure. I have a question for you, Heidi. Mm-hmm. Do you think so? She, we think that she's only like maybe two months pregnant. At least that's what she, that's says, what she says to Mosley. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that might be kind of wishful thinking. Maybe she's a little bit farther along. But regardless, my question is: 
Do you think that if Addie had not been sick during the last two months, that she could have talked honestly with her daughter? Would her daughter have been able to talk honestly with her about the pregnancy? That's a great Maybe. question because we get one chapter of only one Addie's of POV. Addie. And we, you yeah. know, it's really interesting. It's such a good question and it opens up a whole other, I think, line of conversation and speculation between the three of us because we, we actually get very little sense of any of her children's relationship, actual particulars of, our, of their relationship mm. with their mother, um, mm. with the exception of Jewel. But even with Jewel, we don't really get to know. All everybody knows is that Jewel was mom's favorite and that Jewel yeah. was selfish and didn't have the same attachment to his mother that his mother had to him. Um, although I'm not sure the evidence of the text completely bears that out either. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, we do know that everybody perceives Jewel as Addie's favorite, although Ants seems to have no thoughts at all about his wife other than as relates to him um, or sense of any relationship within the family. But I do get the sense that Addie, of course, has a very deep um like a deep and abiding tragic knowledge of the plight of women in the world and um and within her cultural context and and that makes me think that perhaps she'd be able to meet Dewey Dell in her in her plight yeah. and and forge a relationship that they hadn't really had before because Addie specifically says that Dewey Dell belongs to ants and not to her. Um, right. And was given, you know, she's trade as transaction, right? Like I had Jewel and Jewel was what I had and I gave him all the rest of my kids. Um, and that is, or at least three out of the other four. Um, and so there's a sense of renunciation of motherhood on her part. Um, but I'd like to think that that might have formed a bond between them, although that's pure speculation. When you read that section, Heidi, from Addie's POV, mm. how much, how sympathetic are you to her? Mm. She's um, a hard woman, yeah. and yet she's been through hard things, and that makes how you think about her so difficult. You know, it's you know when I read something like I'm I'm working on this, I'm about to go to this uh, event on Wendell Berry, and one of the things that we're doing is we're going to talk about Hannah Coulter, and people who have read Hannah Coulter know that there is like. Hannah Coulter endures just horrific, terrible, you know, hardships. She lives a very hard life. And yet there's a grace to her that makes her mm -hmm. very appealing and makes her like imitate, you know, someone who is worthy of imitation and praise and things like that. Here you have this character who has been through so much and you feel for her. And yet that she is so hard hearted makes it hard to sympathize with her totally. So I'd love to know where you fall on that continuum of like right. sympathy for what she's been through and criticizing her or whatever word you want to use for how hard-hearted she is. I, th I think I don't have a visceral reaction of judgment towards her that I do have towards ants. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> because, and I, because she has endured a lot and she didn't have any help and that, but neither did ants. It's so funny. Like I can't always identify why I feel sympathetic towards yeah, like, yeah. I just like hate ants so much mm. and I have like yeah. no glimmer of 
grace for him. And that's, I'm sure a flaw in me, uh, as a, I don't know, like, but, um, I also don't think that Faulkner really gives us much there. Like he doesn't even, even what we have from his perspective is entirely selfish. Um, and so we don't get kind of the behind the curtain on ants, but with Addie, we do. However, so I do, I do not have the visceral reaction of judgment towards her. However, I can't, if I look at it from the perspective of her children, I, I do cast judgment upon her. And I mean that differently than just, I like immediately write her off, but I look at that and Mm -hmm. I think like that is like, you have done a terrible thing. Like you've done a terrible thing to your children and, and that's on you as a woman, Mm. because it is a mom's job to lay her life down for her children. That is like, no matter how you feel, no matter what, that is motherhood. That is the nature of motherhood. That's the great um, hardship and the great glory of motherhood. And um, the fact that she doesn't do that makes me as, you know, kind of like sisterhood of moms kind of thing say like, then you have, like you have, you have inflicted a wound that you can never take back. And, and in that sense, I cast judgment upon that. But as a woman who is part of, again, the sisterhood of women, like I look at her and I like, I get it. Your life is really hard. And mm-hmm. like, who is there to care for you and love you? That was Ant's job and he failed. And so like that, that you just get caught up in the tragedy of this family and it's complicated. My reactions are complex, emotionally reflecting the complexity of the characters. And I'd like to think mm-hmm. that that's appropriate. My most simple reaction though is towards Ant's. I hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. Again, uh, Tim. So, yeah, well, how do you feel about her? I think the, the compare and contrast with Hannah Coulter, I think, is a really fruitful one. Like they grew up in probably very similar years in American history. They grew up even in similar places. Mm-hmm. Like I assume Hannah Coulter is Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Addie is Mississippi. So, mm-hmm. you know, a similar part of the world. I it, I find it so much easier to sympathize with... No, let me back up. There's not that kind of bitterness in Hannah Coulter that we find in Addie. Mm-hmm. I, part of the reason why is that Coulter is... She's been surrounded by basically trustworthy people, right? I mean, her Hmm. first husband is kind of emotionally cold and she, you know, wishes that they had a warmer relationship. Um, But basically she, her moral universe is, is stable. And I think that it's kind of a luxury that um, Hannah has, that it doesn't seem like Addie has. Like in, in Addie's world, her number, her most, the person she most needs to depend on, her husband, is just, I think to call him a layabout is a compliment. You know, he's kind of aggressively, slovenly, aggressively sluggish. He is as torpid as a wet sponge. And, and I think that I can really sympathize with Addie 
for developing a kind of like bitterness. I also think the affair with a pastor, even though she's a willing accomplice, I think it does something kind of to her conscience. You know, that this man of the cloth, supposedly, even if he chose her, I still think there's kind of like a, um, but gosh, you're not really who you say you are. And, and right. So, and I think that like takes a real toll on her. So that gives you more sympathy for her plight. It gives me a lot more sympathy with her. Right. Right. Hmm. You know, you, you look at the, the Mosley chapter and there's, he's talking to the sheriff and the people in the town. It's this pretty small town. And yet all the people in the town look at them like they're, you know, savages, like they're yeah. animals yeah. or something like that. So do you think that the book itself, <laughs> what do you make of the, the degree to which the book seems to make them seem helpless or animalistic or lacking mm-hmm. in civilization or whatever it is. I don't know exactly how, what phrase to use. The, it doesn't, you know, there's a difference between even them and like rural Mississippi town folk, you know, and they yeah. look at, you know, the, they look at this family like they're animals, like they're savages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it puts us in a bind of saying, well, how do we look at them? So do you think mm-hmm. the book is, is sympathetic with how sort of uncivilized they are, or is it criticizing that? Or is it, I mean, is it just a documentary, you know, is it just sort of realism at work? How do you, how do you, how do you think about that in terms of the way the book is portraying the sort of lack of civilization that they have? Right. Uh, I think that it is showing that to us as a critique of, as a cultural critique not as a critique on the individuals although they're they're not really very likable right like and right that's the hard thing right and i think that's where faulkner's genius really lies it's i think it's dewey dell who is the most who's presented as the most um in the most like bestial language and Mm -hmm. um and and her inner life is the most simplistic. Um, but she's she's compared to a to a cow, like a milk cow. And and yet she's the one that like Tim, you've expressed like such deep sympathy for her. And I think we all feel that. So there that it seems very clear to me that Faulkner is asking us to look at them with compassion rather than straightforward judgment and to look at the kind of society and circumstances that would dehumanize an entire family and by extension group of people within a culture to that degraded extent. You mentioned that she gets like, described like in animal terms yes. is that it, when Mosley describes her leaving the room as her feet making a little hissing on the floor, which is a, a pretty intense uh, image. <clears throat> and you, and you even get the sense of like, like sort of a, a snake, you know, that he sees her. Yeah. It's this sort of like evil demonic figure this character mostly does not Faulkner and, and yeah they look at them like animals like 
like uh, creatures. When he wants to help her and like he, he has like a very fatherly kind of response to her at the beginning, which to be honest is the only, <laughs> he's the only man that, that we see that that isn't spoken of as having a perceived sexual attraction towards her. Like it's very clear from the language that he he's he's not lusting after her. He's thinking of her in a very fatherly kind of way. And I don't think the other men, uh, I don't I don't think necessarily the other men have sexualized her. I think that's her perception of men because that's how she's been treated by Leif. Um, yeah. But I think that she is used to being treated a certain way by a man and doesn't, doesn't know what to do with his kindness towards her, but he does then at the end, he does kind of turn on her there. Um, but he wants it first to help her. And he asks her where her mom is. And she says out in the wagon, that was really sad. Like just that whole chapter is so like pulls on your heartstrings. You know, there's so little sympathy in this book from anyone to anyone. Yeah. You know, like true. everybody is out fending for themselves. I think about like no one has a word of grace for Vardaman. No one has a word of grace oh. for He's just getting shouted at all the time. What'd you say, David? Vardaman's just getting shouted at all the time. Right. Right. The youngest character in the book, the one who needs like the most help or the most gentleness. He gets nothing. And it seems like the strongest bond of sympathy in the whole book is between the reader and the family. Mm. Mm. I mean, hopefully, hopefully that's what the bond is between us and them. People do try to help. I mean, and I think Tull has a connection with Vardaman. He talks, he calls him the boy and he holds his hand when they're crossing the bridge. That's true. Yeah, that's true. uh, But to your point. They are trying, but Ants is rejecting them to your point, mm-hmm. it's all outside of the family. Yeah. Right? And it's, and it's all being all of that kind this is why I dislike ants so much. Uh, is any kind of gentleness or kindness that's being showed towards them. He shuts down because he wants his teeth. Yeah. <laughs> like that there's so, any kind of hope for like any kind of like neighborly feeling, any, any, any membership type feeling, which it does seem like some of the neighbors have that, right? The way Tull is, he's there. He doesn't have to be there. He's there out of kindness. That's Samson's there. Like there's, there, there are these people who are trying to help this family and the women feeling so helpless and like, why don't you come in and let us make you a meal and you can stay in our bar. Like you, they don't want to stay the women don't want them to stay in the barn. They want them to come inside and sit down at a meal to share it. They're trying to be neighborly and they're getting shut down by ants all the time. It seems like ants, the reason he shuts it down is because he perceives everything as condescension. Yeah. And he's too prideful to accept that con to accept like a help because that would mean that he is who he is, which is, Mm Like just incapable. Mm-hmm. He can't abide by the idea that he, there might be something he can't do for himself. Right. Even though every minute in this book, he's not providing for anyone. It's, I and, think that's, that's part of what like drives me so crazy about him. And his pride is creating a barrier yeah. between the community and yeah. his children. Exactly. I, I, yeah. 
one of the, my favorite scenes in the book was the revelation um, that, oh, sorry, not um, that Jewel was sneaking off. They all thought, oh, he's going yeah. and he's having an affair and he's not telling us because it's probably with the married woman. Mm-hmm. And then we find out, no, he was actually like working at night yeah, he's clearing the field. Yeah. And I love the exchange between Jewel and Ants when Ants is kind of like, I mean, Ants punishes him for taking the initiative, clearing this field at night. He's basically like, so you earned a horse. That's another mouth to feed instead of, oh my goodness, how impressive. You worked so hard. You earned this extra money. You've now earned a horse. No, he immediately goes into a complaining bench like, well, how are we going to feed it? And yeah. Jewel immediately snaps to and says, like, basically, my horse is never going to eat a single oat of yours. He'll he'll sooner die, you know? Like, I'll take care of this dad. Like, I actually know how to kind of provide for myself. I'll provide for the horse. I, I really mm-hmm. like Jewel. I know huh. he is a hard, hard man. But man, as the book, as we get deeper into the book, I have more s- sympathy because I think he's actually kind of soft-hearted. Mm-hmm. Um. And he has that kind of armor plating around him because he is so soft-hearted. Yeah. I don't think he's going to repeat the mistakes of his dad. Well, his whatever, his pseudo-dad. Yeah. Um, I think he's going to live a different kind of life. I'm not sure that it's going to be a happy life, a joyful life, but I think he's going to live a different kind of life. You, you, and he, and he, I think the reason that ants can just give away the horse goes back to what you were saying, Heidi. Like, Ants doesn't, he doesn't put in the work. He doesn't, he doesn't put in the work that Jewel puts in to earn the horse. So he, he doesn't value the horse. Like he can just give it away because it's not something that he had to lift a finger to get or to care about that. He doesn't, you know, he hasn't put any effort in that would cause him to love the thing or to value the thing. It's just a commodity to, you well, know, and don't you think, don't you think he hates the horse? Because it's symbolic of his son it's a having more potential than him and, right. and becoming independent. So I think that's that when he, I texted you guys that I sent you that text after he had sold Jules whore, traded it for the, for the mules, um, which mm. even that act, right. Of trading a horse and everything that the family owns of value for mules, which are a sign of independence yes but also poverty right like they're like it's it's the it's the poor farmers who have mules not horses right and so the way he's exchanging everything that sets jewel apart so that he can just become so he can bring him back in line i think he hates that horse and and that's why i think Mm. jewel's mother is a horse like that's all like so tied up with Addie and, and Addie's betrayal, which feels like, which Anne's has absorbed that sense of betrayal and takes it out on Jules horse, which is how his mother is a horse. Right. Um, mm. And that like that, that kind of complex, like, like interplay of dependence and independence that, uh, that Jewel is constantly wrestling with throughout this entire novel because he's different than all the other kids. 
biologically different and also different in all these other symbolic ways. And the horse is, the horse is like carries the weight of all of that. And so all ants wants to do is get rid of that horse, get it out of the family. Everything is wrong with that. Like the horse carries the weight of all of that. It even carries the weight of that with Jewel because Jewel abuses that horse he loves it and he mm. hurts it all at the same time. He's constantly punching it. He is constantly cruel to his horse. And yet it's everything he loves, which goes to his own self-loathing. Like it's a very, man, it's, it's dark symbolically right now. Rich. It's, it's so weighted, right? And a horse is so masculine um, mm-hmm, and has such a weight of like, of, of which we talked about when we, when we did all the pretty horses, like it has like this weight of male sexuality on the symbolism of it as well. Um, and, oh man, that just, my mother is a horse is, that's, that's a big, that's a big thing. That's a big thing in this book. You know, one thing that I've noticed about us um, on Close Reads is when there's a book that has really well-drawn characters, we we tend to not ask questions about... I want to check that. I started to say we tend to not, we tend to not ask questions about... Um, motives and actions, but we just take these characters as kind of like fully formed human beings and discuss, you know, why they did this and why they did this. Whereas in some of the books that I feel like the characters were less well drawn, we spend a lot more time trying to understand like, okay, who exactly is this and what exactly are they doing? I'm not, I don't know that I'm being very clear about what I see, but I, these no, characters are so bright right now. And I don't, and I think they were, it took a little while for me to see just how brightly drawn they are because the method of the storytelling is so novel and it's not always simple to read as we talked about in the first couple of episodes. But by the time that we, you know, cross the river with this family, all the kind of fractures between these characters and their propensities as human beings just seems so clear to me. And it sounds like to you guys also. Do you think that the characters are meant to be intelligent? Some of them are, yes. I think Jules really intelligent. Darl obviously is very intelligent. I think that Cash and Dewey Dell are probably just pretty simple people. Uh, but still have been denied so much that that has um, so, yeah, just denied their opportunities to develop into, like, I think if they were in a Wendell Berry novel, they would be like, just like really good people, like good ordinary people, right? Like a farmer's wife and a farmer and, and, and they would be honorable people. Ernest Finley or something. Yes. Um, And Vardaman is, I mean, he's still a child, but he does, he does seem to have some special needs. <laughs> um, and, but I think that, I think one of the whole points is that like, there's this big weight of emotion, this big, I mean, they're all human and all humans have a capacity for a depth uh, and a richness of humanity. And, and, and the language for that and the framework for that has been denied to these people and because of that they're 
like Jules' intelligence is actually just turned into cruelty, right? Um, like Ants, instead of becoming an industrious and a hardworking man, has become, turned more and more inward and become more and more um, self-indulgent and um, narcissistic or whatever, although that word's way overused, self-absorbed. Um, so yeah, I do think that some of them could have been really, really intelligent people and just have been denied. A, a question along those lines. Somebody asked on the Facebook page, do we think that the vocabulary of some of these characters, I'm thinking about Darl especially, kind of outpaces their education level? I think some of the vocabulary just outpaces most of our education level. Right. Um, I don't know. I was thinking but, about but that But wait, too. wait. I don't know that that's... <laughs> Is that an answer, David? Well, no, but <laughs> it's not. No, I think that, um, I mean, I was thinking about, I was thinking about that a lot too, like with Darl, because, but I don't, I don't know if we can answer that without really knowing how, like, were there people that spoke that way that had read a lot of the King James Bible, despite the fact that they lived in rural, you know, Mississippi? That's, that's the tougher thing for me to, to answer with any kind of, Feeling like, I actually, feeling like I actually can answer the question. Because um, on, the, on the one hand, he, it does seem like his vocabulary, as a, as a point of view of the story, outpaces what he would have likely been like. But then that's just a sense that I have living in 2022, not like any real knowledge. I mean, how do you, you have seemed to have some opinions on Darl's, uh, narration and the way he presents himself and the way he may or may not, it may or may not be realistic. You implied some things like that in the first episode. What do you think about it? I mean, what we don't know is where this narrative is coming from. Right. Um, and, and meaning Darl writes in the present tense and then he switches into the past tense at various times in his narrative. Um, and, and, and it's Darl's narrative that we get the italics, which have always puzzled readers, right? Um, and are used in a very fluid way. And we haven't talked too much about that, um, that particular writing choice of Faulkner's. Um, but it's, it seems clear to me that this that Darl's narrative has been written from a later time, remembering this time. It is a memory novel. Um, and so it's possible that some of his vocabulary on a practical level is coming from future education that he did not have at the time that this was happening, right? Um, and so there, that's one possibility. And then the other possibility is that it was, it's not intended to be realistic as much as it's intended to give us a glimpse into a more sophisticated mind within the family, which is why everyone thinks he's a weirdo, right? I, I just want to read a section from Darl. For me, it's on page 141. Before us, the thick, dark current runs. It talks up and it talks up to us in a murmur, became ceaseless and myriad. The yellow surface dimpled monstrously into fading swirls, traveling along the surface for an instant, silent, 
impermanent, and profoundly significant, as though just below the surface something huge and alive waked for a moment of lazy alertness out of and into light slumber again. It clucks and murmurs among the spokes about the mule's knees yellow, scummed with flotsam and with thick-soiled gouts of foam as though it had sweat, lathering like a driven horse. Through the undergrowth it goes with a plaintive sound, a musing sound. In it the unwinded cane and saplings lean as before a light gale swaying without reflection as though suspended on invisible wires from the branches overhead. Above the ceaseless surface they stand, trees, cane, vines, rootless, severed from the earth, spectral above the scene of immense yet circumscribed desolation filled with the voice of the waste and mournful water. That's amazing. That's really amazing. It seems like that's written in the ten, the kind of present tense of experience and not reflecting back on, it doesn't seem like it's a, a distant memory. It seems very immediate. And it also seems to me like it really does outpace his education level. I mean, just conceptually, mm-hmm. maybe not his vocabulary, but conceptually, that's really advanced, just like thought, a thoughtful seeing of the world. And so Agreed. Oh. the person who posted on Facebook, I, I, I wish I could remember who it was. Susan. I need to give you. No, it was Susan. Susan. Susan, Susan Johnson? Yeah, Susan Johnson. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. One of our kind of great readers. Then I agree with Susan, but for some reason it doesn't bother me. Yeah. I like, think it's like, it's right? It's not a flaw. No, and I think it's, it's almost not a like it's entirely intentional. That's one of those things that my students would be like, did they do that on purpose? I'm like, yeah, it's Faulkner. Yeah, he totally yeah, yeah, did yeah. it on purpose. And he had a better reason than we could ever think of. Um, yes. So all of that. So it's like Faulkner, I think recognized, yeah, his interior monologue is going to outpace his actual education. But this is how I show that Darl has this really rich inner life like a, a very poetic kind of sensibility. Um, and I think, and I, I read those sections and I don't think this isn't realistic. I think Darl is a man of a profound feeling. And that's the language that shows us that yeah, the chosen language right, that right, gives right. us a glimpse into that mind, into that kind of like mythopoeic connection with the other yeah, members yeah, of the exactly. family and th- with the world. Exactly. I think by way of clarity, I might pick a nit with what you're saying, so to yeah. speak. I, I think it is the, the expression of the inner life that outpaces the education, not the inner life, which is being outpacing the education. Wait, what's the difference? Because yeah, go on. The, the inner life is observation. He's just seeing and he sees what other people don't see. So like you, you know, before us, the thick, dark current runs. It talks up to us and a murmur becomes ceaseless and myriad. The yellow surface dimpled monstrously into fading swirls, traveling along the surface for an instant, silent and permanent and profoundly significant, as though just beneath the surface, something huge and alive waked for a moment of lazy alertness out of an into light slumber again. Like he's, a, he is, he's seeing images, like he, he, his imagination is at work and it's the expression, it's the words that he's choosing to express those images that would outpace the education, not 
the sense that what he, he's just to me he's just seeing images um like at the end of on 145 much later jewel and vernon are in the river again from here they do not appear to violate the surface at all it is as though it had severed them both at a single blow the two torsos moving with infinitesimal and ludicrous care upon the surface it looks peaceful like machinery does after you've watched it and listened to it for a long time as though the clotting which is you had dissolved into the myriad original motion and seeing and hearing in themselves blind and deaf fury in itself quiet with stagnation squatting Duidel's wet dress shapes for the dead eyes of three blind men those mammalian ludicrosities which are the horizons and the valleys of the earth so yeah, Cormac McCarthy and so ludicrosities. Forth. I know, I know. It's so Cormac McCarthy. So like, what's happening is he is seeing an image, and he's his imagination is taking that image, and it's like he's saying, like for example, it looks like the two torsos are moving with care upon the surface, like they're moving very carefully and slowly, and then he begins to ex- expand on that idea, and his imagination is taking it, but the way that he expresses it, that the words that he's choosing to to express those images are what maybe outpace the education. But I don't well, think I don't that know. people, what the degree to which you have education determines your ability to, to, to see an image. Oh, I think that's, that is, I, I, I disagree. I, I think that, and I think the more education or the sort of like more nourishment of the internal self we have, I do think that we actually boy, those are see more. could be two different things. Agree, they could be different things, but I I don't think that I don't think that Case could see what Darl sees. But is it? But even though he's looking at the same, he's looking at the same like data. I don't think you could see what Darl is seeing. So then it. Is it like magical realism are you, to make a, these two? I mean, they're just different people. Right. One of them has a deeper inner life than the other. One is very practical. He's about making sure that things lay flat in wagons. You know, he's about measurements and planes and step by steps. And Darl has this rich imagination. But is that a function of they're both being left behind? Their two different capacities are being left behind, which is one of the by the culture, by their family, by the you know, the lack of nourishment, which is one of the great tragedies of the book. They, everybody has their own way of, their own individual way of seeing the world. And it's all being, it's all being left without nourishment. Um, but is that because does it's, so I guess what I'm saying is I don't know that I think it has anything to, to do in this book with education. Are you, are we asking like nature versus nurture? Is it like Tim is, does Darl have an innate capacity to see and like to see something mystical something mysterious something beyond the veil does he have that innate can you have that without education well i'm just asking even just does he have that in a different way than cash does in your mind in your interpretation he might for me the nature nurture question i mean it's it's definitely relevant but I, I, I think for me, the reason that Darl has capacity is because he's invested in seeing the he's world in a ritual. Yeah, because he's like paying awake. attention. Yeah. He's awake. Right. In a, yeah. So does that mean he's like 
better educated? Well, okay, sort of. I mean, but I, did, does that mean that he went to more schooling than Cash? I probably doubt it. I just mean that he's, yeah, the word investing is probably like the, the, the best word. Sure, but I, I agree with all that. I'm taking, I guess I'm taking issue with the idea that there should, we should even have a discussion about whether it bothers us. Because you were like, it outpaces his education, and, but it doesn't bother me. Like to what I'm saying is uh, the whether it bothers us or not, it's irrelevant. It's not a function of like the book doesn't care about that. Well, but I think I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Tim, and you're perfectly capable of speaking for yourself. But what I, what <laughs> I thought you were saying was like my, what I heard was it works. It's not a flaw. It's, it's like, it is uh, Faulkner did it on purpose for a really, really good reason. And it, yeah. And, yeah. And don't yeah. So it's not a failure that Darl speaks beyond his education. But the fact that, I mean, I thought the same thing that Susan thought. Like I thought, wait a second. Is this? Me too. Yeah. It, you know? Okay. Well, and I'll, I'll just, just to, by contrast, I did not think that when I read, when I read Cormac McCarthy. And I think part of the reason why is because of the position of the narrator, Faulkner has positioned his narrator very, very close to the people telling the story, right? Um, with McCarthy, that narrator is a little bit more distant. So the narrator himself, which is this kind of like third party, is the one who speaks most eloquently while his characters, who are cowboys, speak with just... We don't get their inner life. We only get their... Mm -hmm. Um, what they say. And so that kind of, we don't have, that's the way that Cormac McCarthy's, Cormac McCarthy solved the problem that I think Susan raised on the Facebook page. What I'm saying is I think everybody has a degree of eloquence in their inner life, no matter who you are and where you come from, that is mm -hmm. expressed based on the circumstances that you come from and what, and the nourishment that's been given to that inner life. And so what I don't, I, I don't think that his inner life goes beyond his, his capacity. I think it's, again, I think it's the expression, like that's where the vocabulary I think does come into play. Okay. So I, I'm having kind of a new question then because I had made an assumption that could be completely wrong. My assumption was that the characters were writing this story that the narrators are the people who they claim to be right. Like Dewey Dell sat down mm -hmm. and wrote something. <laughs> right. And Darl sat down and wrote something, but now I'm wondering if I'm, if that's not true, maybe we like, who is the narrator of this story? The, there's a difference between a narrator though. And a, and a so the narrators are the narrators who they, this is my opinion. Yeah. I, this, I mean, I haven't read an authoritative take on this from Faulkner or something. My take is the characters are who they say they are. are but Faulkner, the book itself is a sort of, it's the key, the, the collection point of those points of view. And that's why it doesn't matter if there's consistency or inconsistency between them. Like they can talk about different themes. They can have different concerns. They can have different things that matter to them. The plot points can even be presented in different ways because the book itself is a collection of disparate points of view 
And so the dissonance, that's why one of the things you have to settle into is the dissonances of the perspectives. And that's what makes it difficult. So I don't, I think, I, I don't even know, I don't even think about it that way is maybe what I'm saying. Right. Well, you don't think about it what way? The way Heidi was kind of presenting yeah. the original thought. I think you're more right than me. Like, I think you're, you're right. Like, I, I think I have a pretty systematic almost, you remember like early novels, how they were all epistolary and then they had to like create <laughs> yeah, some yeah. kind of like explanation for how the manuscript got in their hands. And they put that as a framing, you know, like Frankenstein, yeah. right? Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. Um, Frankenstein. Like that, that kind of thing, like the story within a story. And I think I had like a framing device to give yeah, you a like, sense of realism. There's about it. somebody yeah. who's compiling the story of Addie's death and journey to Jefferson. And I didn't even think about the fact that I was assuming that, but now I'm thinking that's, that's not, that's not right. Like, it's just, it, we have this magical account of the inner life of these people, almost like a photograph, um, that it doesn't matter where it came from. It doesn't. And, and so in that sense, it seems appropriate to me that Darl's language, because he has such a sophisticated, mystical, mythopoeic mind. And so it seems appropriate that the language used to describe it is of a higher order than the language used to describe from another character's point of view who does not have that capacity within them or that whatever that is within them doesn't have the same kind of mind as Darl. Um, and we don't have to explain that in any kind of like scientific sense that, that, that makes sense for it. We don't have to provide a justification for how the manuscript came into our hands, so to speak. The only thing I would say is I don't think that we get the point of view of the characters who are not capable of expressing it. Go on. Like we don't really get a lot of Anse's mind. Right. True. Well, I don't know that, David. We get a lot from Vardaman. Yeah, I think Vardaman, I see, I would I would argue that Vardaman does see he is he is the six-year-old version of what Darl of 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 an of what Darl may have been when he was six. Like he sees the world in sort of a immature, fledgling, mythopoeic way. Like hence my mother, my mother is, is a fish. A fish. I just think and that he, he goes is straight to the heart of Jewel's mother as a horse. Does he see, is he the same? Do you guys see him the same as Darl as having kind of a special insight or is he just a child trying to make sense of trauma? What's the difference? I, I think the latter. I think he's a child trying to make sense of trauma. I'm not sure. I, I can imagine Cash talking in the same way at his at, at Vardaman's age. But, but cash David, is, you I, see him. I will not take this cash slander. <laughs> <laughs> I will not take this cash slander sitting down. I rise to oppose. But if I stand up, then you will be able to hear me because I'll be above the microphone. <laughs> I, I totally I'm think falling. that he might have the, like one day become more like Darl than like cash. I just don't think we, I think it's kind of like too early to tell. I mean, I, that, that's fine. That, that I accept. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think kind of the incredible thing about this book is that we can, are, like with these conversations, we can have these conversations and like kind of never exhaust them. True. Yeah. And it's very difficult to kind of get out what you're trying to say because there is this sort of uh, like myth, this, this poetry that's kind of underlying it all that you can't just, mm-hmm. you can't just synthesize into like a, uh, um, uh, systematic 
theology of the book or whatever, what, what's yeah, the literary right. version of a systematic theology, right? There is a, like, there is a mystery in these relationships and at the core of this book that is very difficult to put language to in a mm. logical way. Agreed. And so much of it is like our own experiences, right? Because you're kind of like, you're kind of, you're trying to get out how you res- you're responding to characters. You have to read this. I think we have to read this book 20 times and sort of, to use the word again, synthesize 20 different personal experiences that we're having with it to begin to really know anything about it. You know, I think that's why it's great is because we, so much of it is about what we experience with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in the sense, like it's all relative, but he is inviting us by the nature of the story to experience it different with every chapter and every reading and like hang out in that mystery. Right. I think you're so right. Dave. That's I, totally true. I was looking for work at um, kind of some classical paintings that we might use for a client's kind of visual presentation. And I saw one of the old Jacques-Louis David paintings, kind of classical romantic painting um, of Horatio's oath, like these three guys holding out their hands toward a collection of swords. And it's very, even if you don't know where the scene comes from literarily, there's a kind of like a sense that this is a, a moment of kind of like um, oath taking. And then we flipped over in this work meeting to Jackson Pollock's paintings. <laughs> and Jackson Pollock most definitely composed. These are not random he most definitely composed. However, because it's not figurative, we do tend to kind of like put more of ourself into the meaning of the painting, right? And I think that this book has more in common with a Jackson Pollock painting than it does a Jacques-Louis David painting. To your point, David, mm-hmm. we like kind of tend to, I find myself doing this all the time. I tend to import or paste more meaning on this book than I would than I would a Wendell Berry book. You, you mean because the book is, you mean import more meaning? Because it's more impressionistic. Yeah, it's right. More, because it's more abstract. Yeah. We have to kind of like, I think it requires more of us to kind of like tie things together. Um, even though yeah. I think that the characters are so strongly drawn, mm. it still dema- it, it still seems like it's much more of a modern painting than a classical painting, a classical representational yeah. painting. One of the things that I'm going to talk about in this Barry thing that I'm doing this weekend is like how much Barry hates abstractions. Like to 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 make a person or a place into an abstraction is to dehumanize them. It's like the fundamental problem of the modern age to Barry. And here we have this book that is very abstract. And yet do the characters feel like abstractions? Like the no. formally, it feels abstract. Not at all. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a difference. Like he's not like Faulkner's not making this place of these people into like data points, which could easily be done in mm-hmm. a book about poor people from Yakin and Mississippi. Right. It just becomes like a documentary about, you know, to, to like make some kind of, social the poor study out of yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Heidi. What were we going to say? No, just that. I mean, it, it's like what we talked about last week in our last conversation about Heidegger, that he is 
that uh, we did talk about Heidegger. That's right. Yeah. That we have with Heidegger, you have a lot of abstractions, which some people really like, like there's, you you really loves to read Heidegger is uh, Andrew John Kern, your brother, like he really likes Heidegger, Um, but he has a very philosophical mind. Right. And so he, and he, he enjoys that. And it like that draws him in. Um, and an abstraction can feel safe because it's universal and then you get to make a judgment on it. Right. Like whether you agree with it or disagree with it or whether you Mm -hmm. think it's true or not Mm -hmm. true. Right. But a person is, and a person's experiences are not something you can argue with. And I think that that's, you can, you can, you can argue whether or not the person's (laughs) making a judgment, a right judgment about the data point of their uh, circumstances. Right. But Faulkner hmm. is much, be- it's much better to read Faulkner. If you're having a question of identity, in my opinion, than to read Heidegger, because with Faulkner, you have, you have people inhabiting the, ins- the abstractions, right. Um, and, and bringing their own personal experiences into it. And so then you have something more than just an idea you have a person um and and that that makes these kind of lofty um philosophical metaphysical questions they make them real right Mm. um it's not just uh a rabbit right it's the velveteen rabbit who's (laughs) becoming real right and that is like that that's what i think is so powerful about fiction um, is it kind of forces us to reckon and wrestle with the fact that we're not just talking about being in time, but about um, children who've lost their mom. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, Hey, Barry says that there's a difference between fact and truth, right? Yeah. Just because something, sometimes there's things that are truer than facts. Go ahead, Tim. You gotta go. No, I was just going to say, um, do you know that Heidegger shows up in, in a Flannery O'Connor short story? Which one? Good Country People, Joy Holga, the, the girl. The Bible who, says oh, yeah. who steals the lady's yes. woman wooden leg. Yeah. I love that story. Right, right. It's such a great story. And Joy Holga is reading like this dense <laughs> piece of philosophy yeah. and she leaves the book on – yeah, on some coffee table and her mom picks it up and she reads a section from Heidegger and it's so abstract. That's it's right. just crazy out there. And I I wish I could remember what the mom says in response, but something like, what in the world is this girl putting in her mind? You know, something like that. I wish I could find it. Maybe my next week, since Heidegger has become a star of this um, series of podcasts, I can find that section. That might be fun. I've been, this idea of abstraction, I think is fascinating. And I've been thinking about it a lot because I've been kind of like obsessed with the, um, the painter Wayne Tebow. Do you guys know him? No. He just died on Christmas day, actually at like age 102. Um, you've probably seen his paintings. Do you spell it T H I E B A U D? And, um, he, uh, he has a lot of famous paintings of like the cakes. You may have seen the cakes painting or, um, different, different food paintings that he did, um, lollipops and ice cream and, um, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, gumball, gumball machines. And he he did hundreds and hundreds of, he did New Yorker covers and things like that. And there's this precision 
to his work. Sometimes they're quite colorful, uh, lots of balance. He, one of my favorite paintings of him, he's got some great landscapes, but one of my favorite paintings he did is this uh, coffee mug. And if you ever want to just look at a painting with kids and talk about shape and talk about how many circles are in this very simple painting of a tan coffee mug with black, well, maybe there's a little milk in it with coffee in it. It's a great conversation you could have with little kids about art. But I love the, these paintings because there is a sense of abstraction to them. And yet there's a sense of realism to them. And there's a sense of whimsy to them. And all of these things come together at the same time. So, you know, it's, it's, these are modern paintings, the modern brushstrokes, the modern lines, the modern use of color and shape and modern images um, like you'd see on a, yeah, that's it. Yeah, Heidi's holding it up right now. And yet there is this sense of abstraction too. Like when you see 42 cakes in this painting or 42 pieces of lemon meringue pie or whatever it is. Um, and so you do, there's something can be abstract and full of realism at the same time. I've been thinking about how, that kind of fine line a lot because I've been sort of obsessed with this paint, these paintings. Um, and I feel like in some ways Faulkner, like he kind of pulls that off. There's this real sense of abstraction and yet it's very lived in and real, you know, it's realism, mm -hmm. but it doesn't put too fine a point on it. You know, it allows you to sort of like the mystery to, to be there. And I don't mean to suggest that Wayne Thiebaud and uh, William Faulkner are either on the same playing field as artists or dealing in trading in the same things. But that's just an idea I've been thinking about. Um, the way that you can have like a sense of realism and a sense of abstraction intertwined in the same work of art. I'm just kind of mm -hmm. interested in that. And I think that's yeah. maybe one of the things that the truly great works of art do is that like when they become magical is because they're taking realism and they're taking abstraction and they're twisting them together and you're not always able to separate them. Mm -hmm. Period. Yeah. That's good. I can see that. So good. Tim, any final thoughts before we go? That no, was my I final just, thought. Yeah. Um, I am really looking forward to the conclusion of this book. It's really sad. I, I'm hoping that someone makes it out alive. You know what I mean? It just feels like it's a, this family feels like a death trap. Ugh. Hey, like the stench, by the way, like the, like the stench as a, like kind of like following them through the town is such, so, such a potent yeah. way of like describing how everybody feels about them. Yeah. You know, it's just like they have the odor of death on them. Yeah. And I mean, the, it's, you know, it's interesting because it's gone from the, uh, the birds following them and like being predators to the, now the, it, that sense has moved on to the people. And the people kind of hover around them and are disgusted. Yeah. yeah. Heidi, what about you? I have three final thoughts. Number one, this book is really sad. And I'm like, I'm, it's sad. And I think that if I hadn't mm -hmm. have had to record a podcast on it today, I would have like stopped in the middle of the reading mm -hmm. and like come back to it because it's just so heavy. And so I've, and I'm like really loving this book, but I think I forgot how sad it was. The second thing is that one thing we didn't talk about today, which was amazing, was the description of the water. Um, and 
the we did like, that section that oh I read was gosh. on the was about the water. Well, we didn't talk about it though. That's what I'm saying. Like, oh, oh. and so I just want to say, like, it was just like the water with the yeah. logs rising up out yeah, of it. Yeah. Oh the, yeah. Oh my gosh. You're talking about like the, the action sequence yes. when they're trying yeah. to. Yes. Oh yeah. It was amazing. great. Yeah. Oh, so, so good. good. Some of the best writing I've read in a long time. And then my third final thought is, can we, I, I just want to reiterate that ants is such an ass and that's my final thought. So to recap, this book is sad. The water scene was awesome. Mm-hmm. Ants is an ass. That's like that's it. The One, rap. two, three. Yeah. Bullet points. Heidi wants to jump through the, into the book and kick I, and yes. ants in the punch ants. Him. I would like to kick that guy in the ants. I would. Yeah. That should be a new thing. Like you want to kick someone in the ants when they're yes. when they're like not insert your favorite not, Christian not, substitute here. Yeah, yeah we bad, keep it bad dad. Family friendly. I love it. <laughs> yeah, close reads friendly. All right. Well. Yeah, that you're right though. That scene that it was inc- it's like an incredible action scene. Okay, that's it. Yeah, we're now looking at Heidi. We're not Heidi's looking up Wayne Tebow paintings. There's one called Pancake um, Breakfast. I just really like it. Yeah, it's great. He makes these amazing food paintings. Great, uh, great landscape paintings. He's kind of in like like if you like Edward Hopper, he's mm-hmm. like the next. He's like you once you like Edward Hopper, go like go look at Wayne Tebow paintings. I do recognize a few of these, but yeah, yeah. go look at the one called Pancake Breakfast. Tim's leaving. Just makes me want to eat pancakes. <laughs> We're just chatting about Wayne Tebow now. Tim's gone. Okay. Well, um, yeah, go look at Wayne Tebow paintings. Well, that's it for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh. I'm David Kurt. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to the Center for Lit and Bibliophiles for sponsoring Close Reads this month. Till next time, happy reading. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.